Father, I pray that you would search our hearts and know us, O oh God, that you would try us and see if, I'm misquoting the verse, but people know the verse, Lord, they know what I'm trying to say, that you would try us and see what our anxious thoughts are, that you would know if there's any way of sin inside of us, and Lord, I pray that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Father, I thank you for uh, all of those songs, but that second one in particular, where we were praying to you to, to give us one heart in pursuing after you, that you would continue to prune our hearts of the sin that dwells within it, that we would be more holy and completely devoted to you. Lord, that we would love you the way we ought to love you and serve you with the zeal uh, that you would have us to serve you with. And Lord, we thank you for the means of grace that you have given to us to use through which you work to accomplish that change in our hearts. We thank you for your word, Lord, that we are going to now. We pray that your spirit would be working through your word to change us, to make us the people you want us to be, and to save, Lord, to save those who may be here who don't know you yet. Father, may your spirit be mightily at work. Um, I cannot change hearts. Nobody here can change hearts. Lord, I can't change my own heart. So we rely on you, and we ask that you would teach us through your spirit, that you'd give us discernment, Lord. Anything that I say that's not of you, may your people forget it. May they uh, offer correction to me, Lord. May your truth ring out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today and the next couple weeks are going to be more like a Bible study than they are a sermon. Uh, the elders and I thought it would be a good idea to go a little deeper in exploring what the Bible teaches concerning the church and what it means to be a member or a body part of the church. As we've gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have already began to touch quite a bit on that. And rather than continue to march through 1 Corinthians, we're going to take a bit of a break from that so that we can move to fully address the questions of what the church is, how the church functions, and what it means to be a member or a body part of the body of Christ within the church. This is important for us to understand because the church is the bride of Christ, right? He's the, the church is the bride of Christ. And if you're a husband, it should be of extreme importance to you how others treat your wife. If you love your wife, in order for someone to be your friend, they have to be a friend to your wife. Otherwise, you and that person are not going to get along too well. Because out of all your human relationships, your wife is primary. Now, I don't know what you did to woo your wife or how you got her to say yes to you when you asked her to marry you, but I do know that it didn't cost you anywhere near as much as it cost Christ to win his bride. He was crucified in order to get his bride. And if your wife is important to you, how much more important do you think Christ's bride is to him? If we love Christ, we must love his bride as well. And we must strive to think about his bride the way he thinks about his bride. And we must labor to treat his bride the way he instructs us to treat his bride. We cannot be a friend to Christ 
if we won't be a friend to his bride, the church. So we're going to work through these next few weeks in answering some questions. And the first question that we're going to address today is, what is the church? What is the church? And in answering this question, I want us to look at the basic definition of the actual word church as it's presented in the scriptures. So we're going to look at the definition, but we're also going to look at the purpose of the church in answering this question, what is the church? So first, the definition. Now, I don't know if it's the case in every single Bible translation out there, but chances are, and I know it's true with the King James, and I know it's true with the New American Standard, I didn't check the others, but every time in the New Testament you see the word church, the Greek word that stands behind it is ekklesia, ekklesia. Now I'm going to get just a little technical for just a little bit, so hang with me for a moment. Don't go to sleep yet, but I need to work through this with you. The Greek noun, ekklesia, for church. The Greek noun, ekklesia, is a compound word. Do we know what compound words are? Butterfly is a compound word. You have butter and fly sandwiched together. Well, the Greek word ekklesia is a compound word, and it's formed by the preposition ek, which means out of or from, and from the, the word klesia, which is from the verb kaleo, meaning call. So call out of or call from. That's why when you often hear speakers talk about ekklesia, they will say that it means the called out ones because that's the etymology of the word. That's the parts of the word, call out. But called out is not exactly the proper definition of this word as it is used in the New Testament. Ecclesia was actually a very common word at this time that had come to simply mean assembly or congregation. And it could be used of many different kinds of gatherings. And just to show you this, I want us to go to Acts chapter 18, and verse 22. I'm just picking this passage because it's right next to another passage that I'm going to have you look at right after that. But in this chapter, Paul, um, he's gotten into some trouble by proclaiming the gospel. He's stirred up a crowd who come together and they're interested in getting rid of him. Or excuse me, that's in chapter 19. This is not that chapter. That is in chapter 19. Here is something else. So just forget the past 15 seconds that I was talking to you. So chapter 18, verse 22, speaking of Paul, he says, When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. There's the word, ecclesia. Paul went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Ecclesia there is used of the gathering of God's people, the church. Now, let's go to the chapter that I had said we were looking at, chapter 19. Here is where Paul, by the preaching of the gospel, has riled up a lot of the Jews, a lot of the, the people, actually not the Jews, the Gentiles, in the city of Ephesus, and they have come together because they want Paul to stop preaching the gospel. Chapter 19, starting in verse 32. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, 
for the assembly, it's that word, ecclesia, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. So typical mob mentality, some of them know why they've gotten together. Paul is, if I remember correctly, ruining their business by the preaching of the gospel. And others, they see the mob forming and they just join. It's this unruly gathering of people, and yet it's still called an ecclesia, an assembly, a congregation. They've gathered together. Now look at verse 39. Here we have the town clerk. He's trying to calm down this chaos. Verse 39, the town clerk is speaking. He says, But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly or in the lawful ecclesia. He said, this is not a duly called meeting that you guys are doing right now. If you want to settle something proper, come together, have a duly formed assembly. It's that word, ecclesia, again. And then verse 41, after this, he dismissed the ecclesia, the assembly, the unruly gathering of people. So you see, this word is used of really any kind of gathering that comes together. It's an assembly. It's a congregation. Now, I'm not saying that the idea of being called out is completely absent from the meaning of this word, but the idea of gathering together is the emphasis of ecclesia. That's the emphasis of this word. People were called out or summoned in order to gather together, to congregate for a type of meeting. For example, at 1015, the bell in the steeple goes off. Not really the bell, you know what I'm trying to say, but it announces to everyone that service is about to, to start. It's calling people out of their homes to come and gather together. So there is a call aspect, but it's focused on the end result of the call, which is gathering together. This word in the New Testament context is more focused on that gathering together aspect. This word was adopted by the people of God and it became a chief way of referring to God's redeemed people. They had been called out of the world by the effectual gospel call of God, the result being that they weekly had a regular orderly gathering together as the people of God. Hence, their use of the word ecclesia or assembly, congregation. Now, why did I put you through that painful experience of explaining that word? It's because I want you to understand what the church is. The church is God's assembled people who have gathered together in the worship of himself. What this means is that online church is not church. Church on television is not church. You cannot have an assembly of God's people if that assembly does not assemble. You cannot have a non-church church. You cannot have a congregation of believers if that congregation does not congregate together. You cannot have a local church without the coming together of believers who make up that church. Church is not a building. Church is a gathered people. Church is not something you can do separated from others. It is something that you do together with others. And from its very inception, this is what has characterized the church. They gathered together with other believers. 
To see that, let's go to the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And this is right before the birth of the church, as the Lord Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Chapter 1, and look at verse 4. What does Jesus do in verse 4 of chapter 1? It says, gathering them together. Isn't that the idea of ecclesia? Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. It's interesting, he doesn't, he's not content to just have them scattered all over the place. Certainly the Spirit could baptize people if they're scattered all over, could he not? But it's interesting, Jesus wanted them together in one place when the baptism of the Holy Spirit came and formed the church. He wants them to wait for what the Father had promised. Verse 6, So when they had come together, so they're together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And we know what happens. He says, it's not for you to know, and then he ascends into heaven. Look at verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons. We see the people of Christ gathered together again. And again, we know what happens. They talk about having to replace Judas with another disciple, Matthias. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all what? Together in one place. And then we know what happens. The Holy Spirit baptizes that group as they're gathered together. And then Peter, he preaches his famous sermon. And what is the result of him preaching this sermon, this gospel message? Turn to verse 41. It says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, what were they added to? Any thoughts? That initial 120 people who had gathered together. And these people who believed, they gathered, they were added to that small gathering. And what were they doing? Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were worshiping together. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see the same thing in chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 4. That says, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be 5,000. So they're keeping track of who's been added to their gathering, their number. Verse 32 of chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, 
the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So again, this is the, in the infancy of the church, their practice is gathering together. Many years later, but still quite early, in Acts chapter 20, we see that Paul is an apostle now, and he's paying a visit to some believers. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Luke records there, On the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So we see it's still the practice of the church. Those many years after Pentecost, the people still gather together on the Lord's day. So that was characteristic of that early church. And when we read through the rest of the New Testament, we find that this is still to be characteristic of the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is giving instructions to the church to put out the wicked man from among themselves. Remember the man who had his father's wife. He told them that when they had gathered together, they were to do this. We also looked at 1 Corinthians 11, instructing the disciples in Corinth about the Lord's Supper. And he talked about their gathering together to celebrate this Lord's Supper. And then we have the famous passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And most commentators agree that this is now in that second generation of believers. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 23. The preacher to this Hebrew congregation writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on, sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. We see there that gathering together is one of the means that God uses to cause us to persevere in our faith. We gather together. That's part of stimulating one another to love and good deeds so that what is warned of in the next verses doesn't happen to us. And indeed, some of the scriptural metaphors for the church convey the same idea. In 1 Corinthians 12, we've been talking about the what of Christ. Anybody? the body of Christ, and how each believer is a body part of the body. Your body is made up of body parts assembled together, and that is how the church is to be. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, the Apostle Peter describes the church as the flock of God. One sheep off on his own does not make a flock. 
A flock is a bunch of sheep gathered together. Peter also gives us the metaphor of the church being like a building or the temple of God. A temple is not made by stones that are just scattered over a wide area. A temple is made up of stones that have been assembled together to make a building. This is the church, a gathering, an assembly, a congregation. So, that's the definition, the very specific definition of the church that we've looked at. And a lot more could be said in making up a definition of the church. But for now, let's shift to looking at the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. One systematic theology textbook called Biblical Doctrine gives three primary purposes for the church. And I'm sure more purposes could be added, but I thought these three things were helpful. First, the first purpose of the church is to glorify God. To glorify God. For that, let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and, verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through what? The church. To who? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Then drop down to verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And there's more passages, but I don't have time to go to them. But the purpose of the church is to glorify God. Next, well, before we get to the next part, I wanted to point out Psalm 22, 3. David authored this psalm, and he's writing from the perspective of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And in Psalm 22, verse 3, Jesus, through the pen of David, says that God is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. So let me, let me ask you, what brings more glory to God? One person isolated by himself, trying to praise and pray and preach? Not that we shouldn't do that, we should. But God is more glorified when we all come together and we sing and we pray and we preach with one thunderous voice together. That makes the throne of the Lord glorious. The second purpose of the church is to build up believers. To build up believers. If you're still in Ephesians 4, look at verse 7. This is a passage we've gone to quite a bit. But there it says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
Drop down to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Drop down to verse 15. Speaking of not just those who teach the word, but the whole body. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We are to build up one another. And you cannot build up other believers if you are not rubbing shoulders with those other believers. Third, the third purpose of the church is to evangelize the world. And I won't go to the passage because we will go to it later, but the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. The church is commanded, commissioned, to go and make disciples. And this is something, again, we, we should do this individually, but this is something that, that we do better when there is an aspect of, of a, if there is a corporate aspect to our evangelism. Why is that? Why do we need that corporate an aspect to our evangelism? Well, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our gospel witness is completely undermined if we are not in community with other believers. How is an unbeliever going to believe a word I tell him about following Christ if he looks at my life and he sees that I myself am not following Christ by gathering together with other believers? Why should he believe a word that I'm telling him? If the love of Christ for his people is not within me, how will he listen to me? So that wraps up that first question, what is the church? It's just a small portion of what the Bible teaches about what is the church. But let's turn to the next question that we'll address this morning. And that is, how does the church grow? How does the church grow? How does the Lord expect for us to grow, to grow spiritually, even to grow numerically? We're to make disciples as believers. How does that happen? For this, we're going to three foundational passages regarding the church, and it's all in the Gospel of Matthew. And these three passages are Christ's teaching, and they each relate in some way to the growth of the church. The first thing we'll see about how the church grows is Christ builds it. Christ grows the church. For that, let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Again, like I said, this is more of a Bible study, so you're going to have to work harder to stay awake. I'm boring as it is, so try hard, all right? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, he's speaking as the spokesman for the apostles. He's representing them all. He answers in verse 16, and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond to that confession? Verse 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells Peter that he's blessed because God the Father revealed that truth to him. Then Jesus proceeds to tell Peter who Peter is. Peter has said who Jesus is, and now Jesus tells Peter who he is. What does he say in verse 18? I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now Jesus is making a play on words here. And you don't, don't turn there, but John chapter 1, verses 41 to 42, record for us how Jesus renamed Simon. He gave him the name Peter. He would be known as Peter, Jesus told him. And in the Aramaic, it's Cephas or Kepha, means the same thing. But the name Peter in the Greek is Petros, and it means stone. So Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, or in other words, I also say to you that you are a stone, and upon this rock, or Petra, I will build my church. Now, this, now you might be tempted to yell at me when I say this, but just give me a chance. The straightforward interpretation of this text would be that Jesus is saying that Peter, whose name given by Jesus means stone, will be the bedrock upon which he builds his church. Now, we tend to shrink at that interpretation because of how Roman Catholicism has taken it and twisted it by saying that Peter was the first pope upon whom the church was founded and that every pope since Peter has carried that same authority as the infallible representative of Christ, the vicar of Christ. Because of that Roman Catholic error, oftentimes we come to this text and we, we try to make it say that the bedrock that Jesus is going to build his church upon is Peter's confession, not Peter, his confession. We understand that Jesus alone is the preeminent one in the church, that Jesus alone has purchased the church with his blood. Peter was not crucified for us. Jesus was. He alone founded the church. And so we kind of try to deal with this verse through that lens. But I want to offer to you this, that there is no reason to try and separate Peter's confession from Peter himself. The interpretation of Peter being the bedrock or the foundation of the church does not necessarily lead to that Roman Catholic error. And it does not deny our gospel convictions. Now let me try to show you why. Turn with me, keep your finger in Matthew, but turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, So then... 
you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are the fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. It's another name for the church, God's household, having been built on the foundation of who? The apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul says straight out that the apostles are the foundation of the church. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. This is the Apostle John relaying to us the description of the new Jerusalem that has been revealed to him. That great city that you and I are one day going to take a part in if we are trusting in Christ this morning. Listen to John's description in verse 14. He says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, if Paul says that the church, the household of God, rests upon the foundation of the apostles, and if the new Jerusalem is going to have the names of the apostles inscribed upon the foundation stones, then I don't see any reason to not take Matthew 16 in the plain sense here. Jesus is not saying that Peter is not a fallen sinner like the rest of us. But Jesus does choose to use Peter and the rest of the apostles as the foundation, the bedrock upon which he builds his church. Peter and the other apostles are going to be the first gospel proclaimers through whom Jews and Gentiles will believe and be added to the church. It's in that sense that they are foundational to the church. And notice that by calling Peter the foundation or the bedrock in Matthew 16, notice that Jesus does not give up his glory or his supreme place in the church because who is building the church? What does he say? Verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. Christ reserves the preeminence for himself. Christ lays the foundation, not Peter. Peter did not assign himself the position of being the bedrock of the church. Christ assigned that to him. Peter is not the builder. Christ is. Again, I want to bring in this imagery that Peter does in his own letter of describing the church as the temple of God. Every believer is a living stone, and it is God, it is Christ who places them in the temple of God, the church, just as he chooses. Jesus has chosen himself to be the cornerstone, but by his grace he has chosen the other apostles to constitute the foundation of the church. And by his grace, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, he has chosen you to be another stone that's resting upon that foundation, and you have found your place within that temple of God. The church had to begin with someone. And Jesus chose to begin building with Peter and the rest of the apostles as the foundation. Back in Matthew 16, Jesus goes on in verse 18 to say that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In speaking of giving Peter the keys 
of the kingdom. Jesus adopts language that the prophet Isaiah used. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22. Having you flip pages is my ploy to keep you awake. Isaiah 22. In this chapter, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he has a judgment to announce on the steward, the steward who was over the household of the king, who at that time was Hezekiah, over the household of David. And Shebna was an unfaithful man, and so God said, I'm going to roll you up like a ball and cast you out. And in verses 20 to 21, he speaks of who it is who is going to replace Shebna. It's a man named Eliakim. So Isaiah 22, starting in verse 20, he says, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority or your rule, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will, and here's the language, I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. As the new steward, Eliakim would wield a great level of authority. The language describing him is similar to describing Joseph, who was second in command to Pharaoh. Eliakim is said here, that he will become a father to Jerusalem, a father of Judah. And remember what was said about Joseph. He became a father to Pharaoh. So Eliakim, he's, he's given much authority under the kingship of Hezekiah. As the steward, having the key to the house of David, Eliakim had authority to admit some into David's household, and to exclude others from David's household. That's the point of a key. It opens, it unlocks a door. Now back to Matthew 16 to make the connection. By giving Peter, and by extension the other apostles, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is giving to them the stewardship, the delegated authority of opening up the kingdom to others. Isn't that what we see happening when we come to the book of Acts? What does Peter do in chapter 2? What does Peter do? Anybody? In chapter 2 of Acts. He preaches the gospel to the Jews who are assembled there. And what happens? 3,000 of them repent and believe in the gospel and they are added to the church. They are incorporated into the kingdom of God. And then what do we see in Acts 10? Remember, Peter is sitting up on the rooftop. He's, his stomach is gurgling. That's my thought on that. He's hungry. God gives him a vision. Say, kill and eat. There's a great sheet coming down with all sorts of unclean animals. God is trying to teach Peter that what God has made clean, Peter should not announce as unclean. And then right at the moment, uh, some guys come to the house, and they're from who? Who sent those guys to the house? Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and the Holy Spirit says to Peter, go with them, don't be afraid. And so Peter goes in chapter 10 and he 
comes to Cornelius' house, and what does Peter do? He preaches the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile, and his family. It's not a mistake that we find Peter to be the one first preaching the gospel to the Jews and then being the first one to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, Keep your finger in, in Matthew, but look at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, this is the Jerusalem council, and Peter is rehearsing or uh, he's just remembering what the Lord did when he preached the gospel to Cornelius. Acts chapter 15 and verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days... God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. By my mouth. Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter goes on there to give all the credit to God. That it was through his mouth that he delivered the message, but Peter acknowledges that it was God who made the choice of him, first of all, to be the one preaching, and it was God who saved them, who granted them faith. Peter doesn't take any credit for that. He realizes that his authority in turning the keys was merely delegated to him, did not originate from him. He merely proclaimed the one who was the way into the kingdom. He himself was not the way. Jesus was the way. Peter was turning those keys by preaching the gospel. The gospel message is the keys to the kingdom, and Paul turned those keys by preaching it. But it was Jesus who sent Peter to do that, and it's Jesus who builds his church, not Peter. So how does the church grow? Christ builds it, and he builds it through his disciples. Next, in thinking about how does the church grow, we'll go to our next matter. And that is this, discipline purifies the church. Discipline purifies the church. We're going to Matthew chapter 18 and verses 15 to 20. Here, Jesus gives the church instructions for exercising church discipline. Now, what does church discipline have to do with the church growing? Well, just to illustrate that, I used to work for the DEC trying to eradicate giant hogweed. It was this giant plant, and it was a public health nuisance because if you got the sap on you, it would make you severely sensitive to sunlight and you'd get burned. But it was also, as an invasive species, a threat to natural species because if you have giant hogweed, its leaves are so broad that it shades out everything next to it, and so it just takes over. It, it takes up all of the sunlight that would be available to any other plant. So in other words, if you have giant hogweed in your garden and you let it grow, pretty soon that's all you're going to have because everything else you've got that you've tried to grow has died. It won't survive. And it's the same in the church. If we allowed the dangerous weed of sin to grow in the church, it will stunt the growth of the church and it will kill the church. Now, We know from Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares that there will always be tares among the wheat. 
There will always be weeds that look like wheat until enough time goes by to make it evident that they're not wheat. You know, we're going to always have some unbelievers among us that look like believers, but they're not. And that's not for us to be able to see. That's for God to see. It's inevitable that unbelievers will find their way into the membership of the church because only God can unfailingly know the heart. Once an unbeliever becomes a member of the church, that unbeliever can live an outwardly moral life and avoid church discipline. That's just a reality. But that's one thing. And it's unfortunate, but Jesus taught us to expect that, that there will be unbelievers among us who we can't see for some time. But it's another thing entirely to have someone throw aside the mask of external morality and begin to ravage the church with unrestrained, unmasked sin. It's like having a giant hogweed plant right in the middle of your garden in the midst of a bunch of tomato plants. It's obvious. That plant, that unbeliever who's just given himself over to obvious sin cannot be allowed to remain in the church if the church will grow and thrive as Christ intends. So, church discipline is essential to the growth of the church. Jesus, he outlines the procedure here in Matthew 18 for disciplining an unrepentant sinning member. Let me read it for us. Verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The goal of such discipline is never to humiliate someone. It's never to be a reason for the church to beat its chest and say, look at me. The goal of such discipline is always the rescue and the restoration of the sinning member. It's always for the purity of the church. It's always for the glory of Christ. And if that, if that unrepentant member repents at some point throughout those three stages, you have won your brother. But if he does not, Jesus says he's to be placed outside of the church, to be no longer treated as a brother, but as an unbeliever, to be evangelized. So Jesus, in these verses, he authorizes the church to exercise church discipline. And notice, I say he, he, he authorizes the church, not the pastor, the church. It seems clear in Scripture that the authority to exercise church discipline rests not with one individual or not with just a few individuals in the church, but it rests with the church as a whole, certainly to be led and directed by the leadership, but the whole church is to be involved in the disciplining of an unrepentant member. In verse 17, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And it's only after it's been told to the church that such a person can be removed if he does not repent. We see this corporate nature 
of church discipline in several places. For example, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Keep your finger in Matthew, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been here before, but verse 1, Paul says it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Now listen to what he says in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see the corporate nature there. Paul doesn't just run this guy off on his own. He is enlisting the whole church to be involved. The end of that chapter, verse 13, notice who Peter directs the command to to remove this man. He doesn't take it upon himself. He issues the command to the church. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You know, one man standing up here behind a pulpit can't say, hey, you know, unfortunately, this brother or this sister must be disfellowshipped. If you're all not on board, it's not going to happen. I can't make you not fellowship with this person. It has to be a church-wide sort of thing. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 6, Paul is speaking of one who has been church disciplined. But notice what he says. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by who? What does your Bible say? 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6. Who is it inflicting the, the punishment? The majority. The majority. So this is something the church is doing. And there's other passages, passages that I could go to, but that's all we're going to look at. It is a corporate thing that the whole church has to do in pursuing with love this person who needs to be brought back into the fold of Christ. There's not one guy who can do that. The whole church, all the brothers and sisters need to be in on that. Back in Matthew 18, notice what Jesus says in verse 18. Matthew 18, verse 18. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Does that sound familiar? That is the very same thing that Jesus said to Peter when he gave him the keys to the kingdom. It's exactly what he said to Peter. And here it is said to the church. The authority and the stewardship that Jesus delegated to Peter extends now, to some degree, to the church. This binding and loosing language, it's hard to nail down, but it seems similar to what Eliakim in Isaiah had the authority to do in the house of David. 
as one holding the keys, he could allow some into the household and he could bar others. And isn't that what's happening in church discipline? We are allowing some in and we are barring others. If someone is true to the gospel and is striving, however imperfectly, to follow Jesus and is living a life of repentance and faith, the church affirms their profession of faith by admitting them into the church. And the church continually attests to the reality of their forgiveness, the reality of the fact that they have been loosed, they have been released from the bondage of their sin and from being under the wrath of God. On the other hand, if someone rejects the gospel or has given up on following the Lord Jesus and is no longer living a life of repentance and faith, the church is duty-bound at the command of Jesus to exclude that person from being a member, a body part of the church. The church can no longer affirm that person's forgiven state before God. And the church testifies that by all external appearances, they remain outside of the kingdom of God. And notice in verse 18 that what the church binds on earth has been bound where? In heaven. And what the church looses on earth has been loosed in heaven. So the verdict of heaven and the verdict of the church are perfectly aligned. Now, does that mean that the church has the authority to absolve anyone of their sin? Of course not. All the church can do is affirm or deny the observable reality of someone's profession of faith. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. That's all we are responsible to do as as believers, is look at the fruit. Insofar as the church is faithful to the gospel and faithful to exercise church discipline in accordance with Christ's commands, the church's verdict regarding someone is backed up by heaven. Now, does this mean that the church is infallible and never gets it wrong? Again, of course not. This is why every church must exercise extreme care in following the instructions that the Lord Jesus has given. Only God knows the heart, and the church must always keep that in mind. Only he can unfailingly know the state of someone's soul. But again, as far as the church is faithful to hold to the scriptures and deal with members as Jesus instructs in his word, as far as they are faithful in that, God backs up their decisions. That's what Jesus goes on to explain in verses 19 to 20. What does he say there? He says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. We so often rip these verses out of their context. Jesus is still talking about church discipline here. Jesus is showing us that the authority a church has in exercising church discipline is totally unrelated to the size of that church. How many people does it take to form a church and to be able to discipline a member in that church? It takes three. There's you, someone else, and a third. And if the third sins, you go to him privately. And if he doesn't repent, 
you take along the second individual so that he can be a witness. And if the person still does not repent, well, the whole church knows because there's only three of you. And you keep calling him to repentance, and if he still doesn't repent, Jesus authorizes you and the second person to disfellowship the third because Jesus is there in your midst as a church. All you need is three. So if you get disciplined out of a church of three people and you go to try and join a church of thousands, because it's easy to blend in, not be noticed in a church of thousands, that church of thousands has a duty to look into what happened between you and that three-person church. If that three-person church was simply being faithful to Christ and excluding you because of your unrepentant sin, that megachurch has no business admitting you into its membership. The verdict of that three-person church, insofar as they were faithful, is backed up by heaven, by God himself. And if that megachurch disregards that verdict, they will find themselves disregarding heaven. God the Father and Jesus his Son are just as much present in a three-person church as they are in a megachurch if both churches are biblically faithful. Why does a three-person church have as much authority in church discipline as a megachurch? It's because the authority does not rest in the church itself, but in the God who dwells within the church. And God is just as much here as he is in some 20,000-member church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. In this chapter, we see a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they sell a piece of property. And they donate some of the proceeds to the church. That sounds like a good thing, a good thing to do. But the problem is that they said they were donating all the money that they had received from that sale, when in reality they were only donating a part of it. So they were lying. They were lying to the apostles, they were lying to the church, and they were lying to God. They wanted to appear more generous than they actually were. And Peter, in representing the church, gives his verdict on this action in verses 3 through 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when we come to verse 5, we see heaven immediately confirm the verdict of the church. Verse 5, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. If you keep reading, a few hours later, we see his wife, Sapphira, given an opportunity to come clean, but she persists in the lie, and God puts her to death as well. Now, look at verses 11 through 14. 
Verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. What was the aftermath of this first case and this most extreme case of church discipline? What was the aftermath? Well, according to verse 13, the world was more than happy to stay out of the church. said, I don't want anything to do with that. But according to verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. You would think that the exercise of church discipline, especially of this kind, would kill the church. Nobody's going to want to be a part of that. But the reality is that church discipline purified the church, and it allowed it to thrive because Christ was being honored above all else. And when Christ is honored in a church above all else, Christ will be found building his church because he is being honored. And then lastly and very quickly, the church grows because gospel preaching advances it. The last text that we will look at very briefly is Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it should be obvious. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. According to verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth dwells with who? Jesus. And by Jesus' supreme authority, the church has been commissioned to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. What that means is that we don't need anyone else's permission to do this because the judge of all the earth has authorized us to do this. No governor, no president, no king can make us stop doing this because the king of kings has authorized us to do this and nobody outranks him. This is how Christ builds his church. He builds it through the preaching of his glorious gospel. He builds it through the baptism of believers, and he builds it through the patient instructing of his people in his ways and commands. This is the church growth strategy that Jesus has given to his church, and it's the only church growth strategy that Jesus has given to his church. We are not to turn to man-made ideas or schemes or philosophies to try to build up the church. We are to stick with what Jesus says. We are to lovingly proclaim the gospel that Jesus lived a righteous life in the place of his people. He died on the cross paying the penalty for the sins of his people and then he rose from the dead to justify his people showing that by his resurrection, showing that he had paid completely for all of our sins. 
that he's able to save forever anyone who would draw near to God through him. That's it. And Jesus promises us here in verse 20 that if we do things his way, he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray.